You're about to listen to the 32nd episode of Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. Now, we've got a lot to talk about this week. We took a break from discussing Oscar stuff last week when we were in Park City for Sundance and did a live episode on Main Street, and we'd like to thank Airbnb and the Sundance Film Festival for hosting us there. But we still have a lot of Sundance stuff we need to talk about, in addition to award season circumstances, which continue to progress with the ceremony just a few weeks away. So we cover a lot of ground, stick with us, and at the end we dig into Jupiter Ascending, the Sundance secret screening that's also opening in theaters, and the various sort of circumstances surrounding a movie like that. So there's a lot on the table this week, and remember, you can subscribe to weekly updates on iTunes, and you can also send us feedback on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at A.K. Stanwick. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, Deputy Editor and Chief Film Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson out in L.A. Now, the last time we spoke, we were out in Park City for the Sundance Film Festival, so we got a nice little break from award season chatter. Now we're back into it, but Sundance is still sort of with us. So, Anne, how are you recovering from all of that? I'm, I'm pretty good. Um, I, 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 I went to, we had a little IndieWire post-Sundance party last night that a lot of the, the sort of standard line was, are you recovering? <laughs> you know, so we are all recovering. It sounds like you got a bit of a, a bug at the end of it. Yeah, but, you know, I'm always anticipating uh, pushing myself to certain limits. I mean, there's just so many movies to work through at Sundance, and we want to make sure that we're sort of at the forefront getting to all of them. I mean, I was so happy this year to see the variety of, of movies of, that, that I liked at the festival this year. I mean, it wasn't really, uh, for the first time in a while, I think about the biggest, buzziest movies uh, in the way that Sundance can sometimes be. I mean, I, I thought Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which won the Grand Jury Prize, was was pretty strong for what it was. It was very well made, and it had this film geek sensibility that on some level I kind of related to. But uh, there were so many other kinds of movies that were stranger and more exciting to me in some ways from Rodney Asher's The Nightmare, the kind of experimental documentary about sleep paralysis that was his follow-up to Room 237, to Entertainment, this very uncomfortable, uh, sort of uh, bizarre portrait of a stand-up comedian, Neil Hamburger, traveling from one dead-end gig to another. Uh, There were just so many different kinds of movies that excited me. James White, which won the Audience Award for Next, which is Josh Mond's film, starring Christopher Abbott about a man dealing with his mother's death, with Cynthia Nixon in this really strong performance. Uh, Just so many many interesting movies this year. And in that sense, I thought it was one of the stronger Sundances in quite some time. Tangerine from Sean Baker about a pair of uh, transgender uh, prostitutes in L.A., uh, is, is probably my festival highlight. Uh, it's sold to Magnolia, and hopefully it'll, it'll have a longer life out there. But what's so interesting about it is that the starting point for talking about that movie is that it was shot on an iPhone 5, and that it portrays these two kind of unorthodox characters for what it is. But what's so great about it is that it works as this kind of buddy comedy, and there's a levity to it that uh, makes it feel fresh and at the same time very familiar. And that, that to me, suggests that it's a a new kind of movie, one that can be done on a very small scale uh, with, you know, minimal resources, but have a sort of a a grain of of ingenuity to it 
that makes it accessible. And so my hope is that this movie will continue to play around. I think it could, you know, potentially go to the Cannes Film Festival because they usually have, you know, one Sundance movie in, in a certain regard and just sort of have a life that, that, you know, speaks to its really unique appeal to various different people. And uh, that's more exciting to me as a, as a Sundance movie than, than something much bigger and more polished like me and Earl and the Dying Girl. What was your highlight uh, while you were out there? Well, what was interesting to me were some of the relationship movies and some of the sexuality, the sort of, there was the movie called Princess, which um, was from an Israeli filmmaker named Tali Shalom Ezer, which was very similar to the story of Diary of a Teenage Girl, the Mariel Heller breakout that was picked up by Sony Pictures Classics, which was, you know, my favorite film, you know, it's just incredible, which, which celebrated and empowered this 15 year old girl and the fact that she's having an affair with her mother's boyfriend at all. You know, there was, there were tears before bedtime, but it was still a really good entertaining and, and, and and authentic portrait of what it was like to 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 be in the 70s and that sort of freewheeling crazy atmosphere that I actually you know grew up in and but the pr- princess is more daring in its way because it's now it's contemporary and it's about a 12-year-old girl played by a 17-year-old which would not be allowed in this country um who is and may prevent it from being released in this country? Um, who who is dealing with her stepfather and 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 there's a there's boundaries that are crossed in in many ways and she deals with it in a in a peculiar way. Um, but there's also a, a talent that we're discovering here. And and in the case of Strangerland, which is an Australian uh, movie, which was in the world uh, competition, Kim Ferrant, it's her first feature she, after having done some docs and shorts. She is very talented. Too, and she had Nicole Kidman going into some very strange <laughs> sexual territory as her very sexualized teenage daughter has disappeared into the outback after having gone on some kind of nymphomaniac tear <laughs> into the, in this new town that they're living in. And, you know, th- these are very daring, very uh, disturbing areas to get into. And I thought they're, they're you know, and then I'll see you in my dreams, w- you know, got into this. Um, woman who's played by Blythe Danner who hasn't had a a, a relationship since her husband died for 20 years and suddenly she's her dog dies and she's thrown into a different place and somehow hooks up with Sam Elliott which was really really fun uh to watch um and and uh you know unexpected as as well it's also I mean it's like these are formulas that I think a lot of times people just sort of expect at Sundance, you know, like there's the coming of age movie and then there's like the relationship movie and seeing those kinds of movies in so many different ways is is really exciting. I mean, The Witch on some level is a movie about sexuality. Which Absolutely. Is, you know, young woman who's sort of living with a very traditional family in the 1600s drawn to this ominous force in the woods that's sort of beyond her understanding and uh, it's it's terrifying. It won the Best Director Award, I think, for for a good reason because it was it's just such a compelling way of freshening up ideas and emotions that are universal in some ways. Well, what I love about The Witch is the fact that this guy, Robert Eggers, is comes from being a costume designer, a production designer, and the impeccable detail that, that makes this movie come to life is, is part of what's good. And it was also, like Teen- Diary of a Teenage Girl, it was brought up through the uh, Sundance workshops and benefited a good deal from, from that. 
So when we were going into Sundance a week ago or so ago, two weeks ago now, you know, there, there was this real sense of how can you, you know, compete with the previous year, which had boyhood, obviously. And I think the answer was in a lot of different kinds of ways. Um, but what that brings us back to is we're still talking about boyhood in terms of Oscar season. And, um, you know, I think... Which is unusual. I mean, I mean, it, it happened with, 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 with the um, Beasts of the Southern Wild, but it, it doesn't happen every year that, it, that a movie goes so far into the best picture territory where it might actually win best picture. That's right. the key here. That's, that's the unusual thing, especially with a, a distributor that hasn't been in that world uh, that much, IFC. So that's, that's a, it, all kudos to them. I hope it works out. I'm a little nervous. Yeah, about well, it. You exactly. Know? I was going to say, I mean, we are still talking about boyhood, but having taken a week off the award season conversation, the narrative did shift a little bit with these Guild Awards, right? I mean, it, it did seem like Birdman. Well, there's some competition. I mean, basically, it's not, you know, they're there. I think the way that I'm looking at it is that if you look at the individual guilds, um, like the Producers Guild and, and the Screen Actors Guild for Birdman, in each case, you can see why they would go for for that film because it's the one you know along with Grand Budapest that really does have scale and scope, and and it, it's not it it, it has uh, the, the the crafts and it has a, a, an incredible cast doing incredible things you know that you that you really at a very high level and uh, talking to Michael Keaton which I did this week I went up to the Santa Barbara Film Festival, and uh, they do a tribute, and they did one with him. Leonard Maltin interviewed him, and he was, you know, I interviewed him before the the tribute, and, and, you know, he's really a smart, incredibly dedicated and sharp guy who, who, you know, who could have pulled that off, right? How many people could have done what he did, which may be why he really will win uh, Best Actor, Um my sense is that there's more consensus for Boyhood, even if it's a small little indie movie, um, and and that P- Patricia Arquette will win, and Whiplash, you know, will get its J.K. Simmons and Julianne Moore will get Best Actress. Where there's a real contest is Best Picture and Best Actor because you have a three-way race. If Eddie Redmayne uh, wins SAG, and not not be and and then. Um, you have uh, the real onslaught of of American Sniper and the whole narrative about that and Clint Eastwood's popularity and the emotions that are being sort of drawn up uh, around it. Um, it, It's a huge hit, and that doesn't mean that it's going to be... um, uh, a, a front runner at the Oscars necessarily being, you know, but that's, that has happened for Clint in the past that the late breaking movie like million dollar baby goes all the way. Yeah. You but you know, I, I would say the difference between sniper and a million dollar baby is that million dollar baby is a genuine tearjerker. And this movie brings up much uglier kinds of sentiments that divide people and the conversation around it. has reflected that, so but it fun. does make some people cry. It doesn't make me cry. Oh, it made me cry but, out of boredom, honestly. Yeah, I was bored too, believe me. But I, I recognized how good Bradley Cooper was. He is and very I, good, and if he's the spoiler for for this big Keaton success story, I mean that'll just be such a 
such a difficult irony to swallow. He's but, been yeah. he's been nominated three years in a row. He's done good work in Silver Linings, good work in um, American Hustle, and good work here. And he's on Broadway in The Elephant Man. There is a narrative that could support yeah. Bradley Cooper. The thing is, I, I if it were just Bradley Cooper versus. Keaton, I would say Keaton, but unfortunately, when you have a three-way race and Redmayne is in it, he yeah. is in it because he's playing Stephen Hawking and he's twisted, and it's a you know all the stuff we've already talked about. Redmayne delivers an incredible performance, and the Brits are behind him, you know. Uh, then you have a three-way race, and when that happens, you can get Adrian Brody in the pianist, knocking out right. Daniel Day Lewis and. Jack Nicholson. So, but the best picture race is, is in some ways that's something similar going on, right? Because Boyhood and Birdman have had such particular momentum for so long that, you know, Sniper's success could be just the right sort of momentum to sneak in between those two. That, to me, would be the biggest tragedy of this award season. I don't think that will happen. I really believe in my heart of hearts the Boyhood is the consensus title. It makes people feel emotional. It's the same kind of thing as 12 Years a Slave, in a way, where it's just that people feel so strongly about how it makes them feel that they will vote for it, even if all the antecedents aren't there. But this time and, last year, it seemed like Slave was much more of a popular favorite than the way that people talk about Boyhood as being It wasn't winning favorite. all the guilds. It was not. That's true, but it was. It didn't seem like it was as you know. It seemed like it was more. It was a more. It was. It was. It was one of those things where you had to go on faith that it was going to win, even even if even if it it did. It was not a. It was not a. It was obvious to me because I think that I understood that the academy was going for it, but it wasn't obvious by reading all the winners from all the guilds. I just feel like the, the thing with Boyhood that's just continue continues to be fascinating, and I'm I'm looking forward to rewatching this movie in the context of the kind of success it's had. Is that it? Just if it was a movie that was made not by Richard Linklater, that was made on a different kind of scale, you know, that didn't show up at Sundance, all these different elements, it wouldn't have naturally been a part of this conversation the way that so many other films are. And so that's what's so unique about the boyhood story. It is unique, and that's one of the reasons why it's going to win. Now, the question is whether in Eritu, sort of like Quaron with Gravity, if, if in Eritu gets director, because of, you know, it was just such a feat of directing Birdman instead right. of Linklater. And then Linklater has to sell, you know, and then it could be Budapest that gets original screenplay, you know? So there, there's some races there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and adapted this, um... screenplay, which I thought was so sure for Imitation Game, I just have a feeling, an instinct that American Sniper could steal that one, or even editing. Even editing could be stolen, Fine. which I think has to be boyhood. Fine. Let, let Sniper take the, the smaller ones if it'll keep it out of the best picture field. I, I mean, you know, <laughs> even, even the people losing to it should understand. This is a more important thing going on here, which is that you know, I think if the boyhood story ends with it not winning, this legacy of boyhood is secured, but swept up in the, the kind of narrative of award season, it just makes so much sense to send the message about why a movie like Boyhood matters above all else. We went through a Sundance, there wasn't another boyhood, there can't be another boyhood. It's a movie unlike anything else that's out there. I'm also really interested in seeing how the foreign language race plays out. 
This past week, I, I sat down with um, the director of EDA, Pavel Pawlikowski, um, who, who's a very uh, handsome man. I just met him the other day at the um, Academy lunch. Which I was, was going to say he's he's been jetting around the country and around the globe constantly, and, and was talking about just how fascinating it is to become chummy with the same group of people. These all all the the, the, the little crew of foreign filmmakers who are making movies so outside of you know, what everything else is that's being talked about in this Yeah, race. they were hanging out at the lunch. There was Damien Cifron from Wild Tales hanging out with Juliana Salgado from uh, Salt of the Earth. And, and uh, I did talk to, I did talk to the, um, the director of, of Leviathan about some of the stuff that's going on back, back home. And, you know, the disconnect between the idea that the, that the, the film uh, community would nominate um, and put forward as an Oscar submission Leviathan when the rest of the country hates the movie right. and protests the movie. There's this extraordinary irony surrounding the, the way that that film continues to be successful. But frankly, if, if, if Leviathan wins or if Ida wins or if Wildtail wins, I'll be happy. I haven't seen Tangerines. So I can't really speak to that one. That's the one um, I haven't seen either. It's, it's, I, 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 I was still, I was so convinced that Force Majeure right. would, would be the one. It's a slot that most people expected for that movie. But, but you know, Ida also got a cinematography award. It seems like the popular It'll favorite. win. It's Ida also, will win. I would say, you know, maybe helped by the fact that it's widely available. It's on Netflix. Anybody who wants to watch Ida can watch it right now. And, and you uh, should. And it's it, a wonderful, it's, wonderful movie. I do believe so it will win. Yeah, it's so good. And so, you know, in some ways, a movie like Ida or a movie like Wild Tales being in consideration for an Oscar is is as exciting to me as, as Boyhood because I saw those movies at Cannes last May. Uh, well, I saw Ida in the fall circuit, but um, I saw Wild Tales at Cannes last May. I saw Leviathan at Cannes last May. And, you know, they, they're treated as these ginormous cinematic achievements on that scale the festival recedes, and then, you know, it's a question of whether or not the rest of the world will pay attention. And this year, it really does seem like that's more likely than it usually is. And so, you know, it's interesting, I mean, as somebody who is uh, more of an outsider to these conversations, although thanks to you and this podcast, Anna, I feel a little bit more into them than, than before, to see this year's Oscar has continued to be different and exciting, that the, the films, for the most part, aside from this potential sniper spoiler that seem to have the most momentum are really my, really you know just like great great works of art that, that sure are my my Absolutely. sensibilities and, and, and of labors of love that yeah. were only made because people were de- determined to make them i mean that that listening to someone like in uh talk about bird i mean he didn't know whether it was going to work or not it was a huge gamble it wasn't on the same order as the boyhood gamble of 12 years but it was an enormous risk and um I will be happy if uh, both, you know, and Budapest is just, you know, a a, a beautiful souffle of a delicate, gorgeous, carefully wrought imaginary world. I mean, it's just so wonderful. You know, they're all, they're, they're awesome. They're all terrific. And we're already sort of continuing into this year's narrative of, of other films. We've got 
All right. Well, let's talk about what came out of uh, Sundance, in your view, that could be an Oscar contender. In terms of Sundance stuff, um, I would not put me and her on the dying girl in that category. No, me neither. Um, I would say that Diary of a Teenage Girl absolutely has some of that potential, partly, you know, because so many classics picked it up. Yeah, they'll push it. They'll push Um, it. And they'll also push, I guess, um, Brooklyn, right? Brooklyn is a Fox Searchlight. Oh, so, that's right. Yeah, yep. I mean, that would seem to send that message. No, the one well. they did was Grandma. That's the other song. That's the Lily Tomlin movie. Right. So, yeah, we're going to hear a lot about Lily Tomlin over the next couple months, I think. It's, you know, whether it's a scene as a comeback or sort of a it's her time kind of a thing. Because she's got that TV series with Jane Fonda as well. Right, absolutely. In terms of other Oscar stuff, I mean, there's usually some documentaries that start at Sundance that get that kind of traction, whether the Wolfpack, um, who, you know, Crystal Mazel, the director, was our guest on last week's uh, live episode of Screen Talk. You know, that film won the Grand Jury Prize. Does not seem to me like a, uh, like a real typical kind of Oscar-y documentary. It's a very peculiar movie. Um, but I think it's more about the story it tells yeah. than it is about the craft of the filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. I will. I will say there was one documentary that I don't think has distribution yet that I think in the right hands could really go far, and that's Welcome to Leaf, uh, which is just this extraordinary portrait of a town in North Dakota that was overtaken by this crazy white supremacist, um, and that the fact that the filmmakers worked with this guy to get his side of the story, not to endorse it, but in, in essence to bring us closer to the actual events as they unfolded, to show us the, the degree to which uh, hatred can come from a place of, of calculation rather than sheer madness with, with no calculation, uh, puts this movie more in line with uh, something like The Act of Killing, I think, than oh, traditional wow, that's high recommendation indeed. I'll I, have to check it out. I'm, I don't want to set the bar too high in terms of the, the expertise of the filmmaking per se, but in terms of, of what it's doing, the, the kind of ways in which it magnifies evil without any kind of filters of the I moral see. code. Yeah. And so um, I think that could be one from the documentary competition. Well, there's could... always a lot of strong documentaries at Sundance. I have to say one complaint I have about the festival programming this year is that they, just in terms of the logistics of getting to the screenings, it was very hard. If you missed the very first screening for whatever reason, you ended up having to schlep out, you know, to these far-flung uh, theaters that, you know, people, some, some of us don't have time to get there, unfortunately. Um, but the one I did see, which I liked very much, um, besides the opener, which was great, which is what happened to Miss Simone from Liz Garbus, a great music uh, biography that I highly recommend. It'll be on Netflix eventually, um, is Listen to Me, Marlon. Which uh, from Steve, Stephen Riley, which is uh, unusual in that they are telling the story of Marlon Brando using the voice of Marlon Brando throughout. They came, the estate of Marlon Brando found all these tapes that he did, whether he was preparing for a role. I mean, it's not only interviews that he did, but tapes that he, and, and readings. And, and they do this thing where they actually manage to tell the whole story of Marlon Brando in his own words with no, very few, um, other, uh, other interviews. It's really, it's, it's really good. The other documentary that has a really strong subject at its core is TIG, the TIG Nataro documentary, 
Um, it's interesting. I think Tignatara is going to have a big year because the South by Southwest lineup just came out, and there's another Tignatara documentary there that's more sort of a performance documentary about these different house parties that she appeared at around the country. This one, it's, it starts out as sort of this this very uh, sad tale of, of the, the disease that she struggled with and her unexpected, uh, the unexpected death of her mother, but then it shifts gears uh, at a certain point because she did this extraordinary performance sort of off the cuff right where she learned she had had cancer and she weaved in and out of the tragedy of her life and, and ways of finding humor with this deadpan style that's the essence of what she does. And the way in which that story keeps widening is fascinating to, to uh, invest in because she's just such an incredible central figure. You know, the, her kind of muted delivery makes it hard to tell, you know, sort of when she's messing with us. And the movie explores that in a really fascinating way. And, you know, she she was the host of the Sundance Awards, and to me that felt like the first step in sort of, uh, you know, this really big year for sort of appreciating what Tignataro can do as far as, stand, as a stand-up comedian in a way that a lot of comedians can't, which is get real and be funny at the same time uh, without being abrasive or didactic or anything like that. So that's another so, one that should get out there. Good. Well, it also uh, in the spotlight section, you know, not we, we've been talking about a lot of the world premieres, but there are a lot of films that were that are coming up in theaters that you guys should totally see, and, and that includes um, It Follows from David... Uh, Mitchell and and seventy one from Jan Dimage, uh, which which stars uh, Jack O'Connell, who is in Unbroken, and Ninety Nine Homes from Raman Barani with Michael Shannon and Andrew Garfield, and um, Eden from Mia Hansen Love, which takes that French music scene, the electronic music, and takes it to a new level, and and uh, and it's just you know why there's the white white god from from uh, which didn't get nominated, which is a crazy movie. Yeah, it's a little too crazy for the Academy, maybe. Dogs so. taking over a small town. It was great, the and then the t- there's also the tribe, which the which tribe is, is outstanding, and that, from Miroslav Slabashipitsky. <laughs> very, very well done. Almost as good as being able to. To pronounce Andrei Zavagnitsev. I didn't Leviathan. do it. That I did not do. <laughs> you didn't even try. No. Yeah, the and tribe then Wild could Tales. Have been Wild Tales is coming out. So. But you didn't mention Jupiter Ascending. Sundance's okay, great secret. Okay, there was a secret, uh, secret screening. I know. So I went to the secret screening at your behest. I thank you for <laughs> tipping me. And um, and I uh, was horrified. <laughs> You know, I mean, expectations were not high. (laughs) No, no, it's silly. It makes the fifth element look like a work of genius. Let's put it that way. I mean, it's in the same genre. It's a, you know, we're we're spinning around in outer space and there's various godlike aliens played by people like, you know, ludicrously, I have to say. Someone like Eddie Redmayne is sort of trying to channel, you know, Tom Hiddleston or something, and he's failing miserably. I mean, you're you're just laughing at him. Uh, I, I ran into him at the uh, at the lunch, and he admitted that he had worked out for six months to get these incredible abs <laughs> from 
a movie, which they didn't show, you know. So there's this picture running around the internet of Eddie Redmayne with his abs, you know. Uh-huh. Not good for his Oscar campaign. No, but... people were calling it Eddie Redmayne's Norbit even before anyone had a chance to see the thing outside of the trailers. I mean, well, to his credit, Chris Tapley over at In Contention at Hitfix is saying, you know, that's silly. It, it, nothing he does in this movie is going to really hurt him. Uh, and I, I happen to. First of all, I don't think any Academy member will go near it anyway. Right. I mean, it's weird, though, because I, I'll tell you the, the one sort of connective thread between something that's this you know, big, overproduced, pretty terrible movie like Jupiter Ascending and the Sundance Film Festival, which Trevor Groff, the director of programming, pointed out at the beginning of the screening, was that the Wachowskis started their career at Sundance with their first feature, Bound. So I was thinking about that and how... You know, they were such great visionaries at this one point in their career, and The Matrix was a very natural kind of commercial evolution of that sensibility. It was a risk at the time, though, and it was to the credit of, at the time, Lorenzo de Bonaventura, and I believe Jeff Robinov was involved as well back in the day at Warner Brothers, you know, who figured out that this was worth doing. And, and, and it was it was original. It was an original. And, and the, the Wachowskis are great writers and they're great or they were. This movie is so badly written. It is so, the dialogue is so bad. And the other thing is that they started out as the Wachowski brothers and then they became the Wachowski siblings because Lana Wachowski is now a woman. The thing about that, this is the worst woman character I've seen in a long time. This damsel in distress, this so-called princess played by... Mila Kunis, who is incredibly lame and wimp, limp-wristed and, and, and the great Channing Tatum rescue knight, yeah. you know, is, is carrying her around and saving her and, and taking care of her and protecting her. And she has no skills of any kind except washing toilets, you know? There's nothing special about this girl. Well, everything it's about... so yeah. bad. The movie is very antiquated. I mean, there's a scene where she, you know tries to get him to kiss her and he says something like you know i'm just a dog to you and she says i like dogs you know and i was wondering the dialogue i was trying to uh decry yeah at what point in the table read did somebody say you know guys maybe we should rewrite the dog line it's not really playing out the way we wanted to because it's not just that it's that the movie feels very antiquated, like the sort of stilted 50s-era science fiction movies produced by studios with minimal imagination and, and maximum you know, set design. And there's things that are impressive about it on a technical scale that just aren't utilized in any particular way. You know? And obviously it was the right call for the studio to get this movie away from you know, Guardians of the Galaxy season last summer when it was supposed to open. But they obviously were hoping they could do some fixes in the editing room and get it into better shape. And this also speaks to, you know, who gave them notes on this screenplay. I mean, who had the, you know, why did it get greenlit in the first place? Where, you know, who put the money into this thing? It It is so really atrocious. And they were talented. They were gifted. And I supported Speed Racer or whatever that was called. What was it called? It was Speed Racer. It was Speed good. Hirsch movie, yeah. It was good. And and I, I, even though it failed at the box office, it showed real, I mean, they were rewarded for a long time for taking chances 
And um, some critics are saying that this takes chances in a fun and good way. I, I would argue not. But we live in a different kind of period now where filmmakers who come along who show that kind of potential, maybe it doesn't make sense for them to try to make movies on this bigger scale. I mean, you have... I think they're going to have to cut back now. Yeah. Now they're going to have to go back. It's hard for them to go back to an indie-level budget. By the way, the the movie that they made last time, which which was better... Um, Cloud than, Atlas. ...than this one, it, it was done as an indie. It, it was They raised their money overseas, and, and they had a big sprawl. And cast, and, and it was more. They put their own money into sure. it. You know, it was a better movie than this. Yeah, but still, the studio didn't quite know what to do with it. I mean, no. so Jupiter Ascending is coming out soon. It's in that no man's land where uh, you know these these studio movies are just sort of like dumped, uh, sort of in the aftermath of award season or at the very end of it. Right after Sundance, there's all kinds of other stuff opening around now that sort of falls into that. Um, you know, and then there's the, the kinds of movies that are probably not critics' movies, but might end up getting some kind of commercial popularity anyway, like Fifty Shades of Grey, which is right around the corner. Which I'm looking forward to. I'm I'm, I'm hoping that it might be sexy. I'm I'm, I'm 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 eternally optimistic. I'll tell you what wasn't sexy was the prose of the only chapter of that book I could get through. Um, <laughs> That's pretty badly written. <laughs> really bad. But hey, you know, I realize there's an audience for that sort Good of thing. Good for you. So. Good for you for getting that I'm far. trying. <laughs> Look, for me, writing about Fifty Shades of Grey is part of my Berlin Film Festival coverage. I'm not in Berlin, but I'm, I'm watching movies that are in the lineup, and it will have its Berlin premiere next week, so we can dig deep on that one. And right, there's also session. the Malik movie coming up, Night That's of right. Cups, which Night we're pretty excited to see. Yeah, we yeah. got Night of Cups. I will say one Berlin movie that I've seen because I have a review of it being published momentarily. It's 45 Years, uh, which is the latest from Andrew Haig, the creator of HBO's Looking and the director of Weekend. Uh, that very Oh, I loved Weekend. Movie. Yeah. Um, and this is a very different kind of film in some ways, but similar in others. It's it's Charlotte Rampling as this woman who discovers that her husband uh, had a, a another uh, girlfriend 50 years before, uh, and uh, basically she vanished. She died in an accident and was frozen in ice because they were in um, they were in the Swiss Alps. And her body is discovered. And the discovery of this frozen woman from 50 years earlier brings up all these different issues for this aging couple as they look back on their time together. And most of the movie takes place in the constraints of this one setting in this house as they talk through their life. So in that sense, it is very much like Weekend in that it's sort of a chamber piece involved. Love to characters. see this. This yeah. sounds really cool. Really beautiful movie. So, you know, outside of... Uh, What's it called you know, again? It's called 45 Years. In reference I'm right, to the, the amount of time that the... The uh, couple has been together. It doesn't have U.S. distribution yet, but it's you know it's one of those movies that it's 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 at Berlin, so it's going to get a little bit of attention out of there. But it's also, I think, um, a better thing to focus on than the kind of release calendar we're looking at right now. So, well, one of the things I learned at the Art House Convergence was that a lot of the art house theaters around the country do very well with movies that are aimed at the senior audience, and that sounds like one that could do well with them. So, okay. distributors, take note. Exactly. So on that inspirational note, um, till next week when we can talk about Fifty Shades of Grey. Bye, Eric. <laughs> Bye.